Well, I don't think this is, needs to be particularly partisan. I simply want to congratulate the Citadel Bulldogs. If you're a Citadel Bulldog fan, yeah, that was quite amazing, their last two-week run. Boy, fabulous. Well, if you were not here last week, let me catch you up. If you were here last week, remember that we have begun a seven-week series uh, on law and grace. It's a vexing topic for Christians. It has been for 2,000 years, and in fact, I invite you to use the Sunday news this week, the front cover, and let that also stir your minds thinking about law and grace. There's a piece on the very front of it about uh, uh, that, and uh, that kind of apparent contradiction of how not to be a law-abiding citizen in that subtitle on the Sunday news today about... uh, Um, how we let go of that, and in letting go of it, uh, something amazing happens in becoming a person who is um, uh, congruent, if you will, with the law. And uh, if you can remember, we just put out seven bullets last week, seven truths about the law, and uh, they went like this, uh, just as basic definition, any form of external command is law. So we're not talking about the Ten Commandments or the 612 laws of the Old Testament, something like that. We are talking about those and any form of external command that we encounter in our everyday lives. And to remember also that uh, the law is true. The Scripture says, Jesus says, St. Paul says, Old and New Testament says, the law is good, it is right, it is holy, it is, uh, it is true. But it is also impotent and counterproductive for any of us if we try to use the law in ourselves to keep the law. And in fact, Paul will write in his letters in the New Testament, in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, that the law actually creates the opposite of what it intends to create. That the law uh, simply does not motivate us to keep us. And in fact, uh, what the law does is it, it, it causes us to bow up. When we see a speed limit on the side of the road, we tend to be moved towards breaking the speed limit, wondering if we can get away from it. I used the illustration last week of you know, when we dare someone to cross a line. There's something in us that as soon as we get dared, we want to cross the line. So the fact is that the law is good and right and holy, but the law is provoking to us. It arouses opposition It even stimulates us to resist it, Paul will write in Romans in his 6th and 7th chapters. Um, The law simply has no power to help us keep it. So it's a good thing, but it can't help us. So how do we get from here to there? And just to give further weight to this, let's uh, enjoy this film clip from um, another, uh, another place. So 
The law provokes us. And so either by rationalizing our way around it or through it or by denial, even though it has roused opposition within us, it stimulates us to resist it, in fact. Um, What are we to do? I like the way Paul Zoll puts this. He's a fellow Episcopal priest and will be here actually after Christmas this year to teach on law and grace as we continue in this season of exploration and he makes two points about law. And the first one he says, which you have perhaps heard from the here before, because I've shared it before. Point number one, law actually kills love. Law kills love. It kills relationships. The law is good, Paul goes on to say, but it's always heard as accusation. So when you say this to your child, you can do better than a C. Why didn't you make an A? That's that external form of command, and yet it arouses opposition. It irritates. It it turns one off. I think of a a time during my teenage years, in my um, my 20s even, of Edisto Beach after I got my driver's license. And we would vacation at Edisto from driving down from Rock Hill, South Carolina to here, later from Columbia. And uh, Edisto Beach has, unlike Myrtle Beach, that extraordinary from the 40s, four-lane-wide road right on the beach. In fact, it's a four-lane road with parking in addition on the right and on the left. So it's actually six lanes that you can enjoy. And I remember in my teens and in my 20s, and it wasn't only me, it was other Lumpkin siblings, uh, we did not think the speed limit was a good speed limit. It was 35 miles per hour. But it's a four-lane road with parking on each side in addition. And it's a straight run from one end of the beach to the other down that road. And there wasn't a whole lot of traffic. Why shouldn't it be 45 or even 50? And we used to uh, be, uh, since the law arouses opposition, it did. And so we would push that limit of that law, wondering if we could do 40 or 43, would we get stopped? Or Really, we thought 50 should be okay on that. And I know I drove 50 down that road at times, hoping I would not get caught. And I don't know if a new sheriff came to town during the winter one year or what, but in my 20s, there was a flurry of tickets given to my siblings and I over about a three-year period of vacations where the law came down hard and harsh. And not only was 50 not okay, 38 wasn't even okay. You were supposed to be under the speed limit or right at the speed limit. Law kills love, you see. Um, it, uh, so uh, the other side of that, is uh, now in my, uh, well, I like to say I'm 60. I'm in my early 60s. Uh, Now, uh, still have that same beautiful drive down there, same road, six lanes wide, parking on both sides, so four lanes of easygoing traffic, no stoplights, straight run. And uh, now a beautiful, leisurely drive, soaking up the views of unique homes on the left and on the right, Beach and ocean, as you see under a house, and you know, as they're up on stilts, and you see the 
beach and ocean beyond on a blue and white cloud day with pelicans flying overhead. I'm in my Jeep with the top down and I look down at my speedometer and I'm going 30 miles an hour, 32 miles an hour. What's the rush on a beautiful day like this? Well, some of you might say, well, it's because you've gotten older, but um, there may be a degree of spiritual maturity that has also accrued to me over time and also simply a desire to live more in grace and under the law. So, um, the fruit of that new perspective in my early 60s on Edisto Beach is unconsciously fulfilling the law of the speed limit. What is Paul talking about when he talks about grace? Let me throw up some bullets here. We've had them for the law. And just explore this wonderful, mysterious, miraculous word in the New Testament called grace. Paul is trying to describe something of what he saw in the life of Jesus. And as he discovered, it could be a life for himself as well. And he called it grace. It's a mysterious word. It's a profound word. It's a deep word. Because grace is a word of power. It's not a passive word. Grace does within us what the law cannot do within us. So as we heard today from the letter to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it is by grace you have been saved. And what he means by that, not only saved from your sinfulness, your sins, you're saved also from the law. Because Paul will write in other places like Galatians, Jesus wants you to be free. He'll say, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And he means freedom from sin, yes, but freedom from the law as well. So, if law kills love, Paul's all's point two would be, but love births the law. And so he will define grace as one-way love. Love that flows out from one to another without any condition at all. Beginning with Jesus and our Father in heaven himself. It's love without an if, an and, or a but. It is love that does not demand or expect any return. This one-way love, when it is received, lifts you up. This one-way love, when it is received, when you're on the receiving end, cures This one-way love transforms our lives. This one-way love also empowers the one receiving that love. One-way love, grace, is the agent of change in our lives. So God will make the people from his own gift of grace, he will make his people want to do good rather than seeing the good in terms of a requirement or a condition. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant reads, if you keep my law, my commands, I will love you. I will bless you, in other words. In the New Covenant, it is is extraordinary, the shift, because all the ifs are removed in the New Covenant. Our Father in heaven simply says, I love you, my children. From the cross, speaking on behalf of our Father in heaven and speaking for himself from the cross, Jesus says, I love you, no ifs. 
to Peter and the 11 disciples who forsook him and fled, he says, after his resurrection, he says to them, I love you. To you and to me, he says, I love you this much and stretches out his arms on the cross of love. That's why Paul will say, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While there is any expectation of a good return for the effort and the work, Christ died for us. While we were still lost in our own ways, and while those who are still lost in their own ways and haven't found what you have found, Christ died for them too. It's love without the strings attached. It's one-way love. I have an elder brother. Well, there are eight children in my family. And my elder brother has always lived as a newspaper journalist uh, in uh, a very, very financially modest means and uh, never made much money, uh, never saved any, was able to save anything for retirement. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, uh, he is the gentlest, kindest, most loving Christian man you could almost possibly meet. Uh, and so the world has often taken advantage of him, and we've tried to protect him at times because he's very vulnerable to uh, the world. And uh, he has now become elderly and infirm in his uh, moving beyond 75 years old, but with long-term chronic health problems. And uh, his money has run out, and there was a family gathering the past year to say, um, Bill's going to need financial help. He can't do this and stay. He needs to be in assisted living. It's expensive. Um, he doesn't qualify for any particular program. Um, he's going to need us to help, or he's not going to be able to stay where he is. And so um, Ellen and I send $100 a month to a family fund that supports my brother. We offered to send more, but the response from the other siblings was substantial enough that everybody putting it together, plus what he does get in Medicare or whatever and Social Security, is enough for him to stay in assisted living. Now, are, are we giving that $100 because it's been demanded of us? That wasn't the case at all. In fact, I do not even know what the other siblings of mine are giving. Uh, the one who was in charge of this just simply said, at one point, we have enough. Um, it wasn't demanded of us, and we didn't have to do it. I don't know if they're all doing it or not. Was it done out of duty? Well, I guess it could have been, the duty to a brother. But let me say this, that more explicitly, when you think of the kindest, gentlest, loveliest, eldest brother one could ever imagine having, uh, that one-way love that he has extended out from his life, it is very, very easy to do, if you will, the right thing and to financially support him in his latter years. That's grace. And one-way love going one way stirs the heart to become productive in one-way loving in return or out to others. So, if law kills love and love bursts the law and the law is intended to be right and good and holy, we need to major and allow our lives to be majoring in love in response to the love that Christ has shown to us. And love will birth the very thing law was trying to birth by telling you how to behave, but law was unable to birth. Love creates in us a desire and even a power 
and enablement to love in return. Love bursts the law through grace. Well, whenever the scales fall from a person's eyes because they have seen the love of Jesus, that one-way love from the Father, it awakens a corresponding love in that person, some sort of response like, Lord, how can I ever repay you? My God, what have you done for me? How can I ever give you anything in return? And the love, the love heart begins to grow, and all of a sudden, in that new life of faith and trust in Jesus and his love, we become law keepers, unconsciously oftentimes, and unselfconsciously, we're doing what the law was unable to help us to do. So J- Jesus, in many of the encounters he, he has with human beings while he's living on earth, before the, mess, the, the experience of the cross itself, Jesus majors in one-way love over and over and over again. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, his parables of the, of, um, of the, um, uh, the Good Samaritan, his storytelling, but in actual experience. And the one we heard this morning is simply one among many of grace stories of Jesus trying to show how to live a life of love and grace. So the woman who's been caught in adultery uh, actually is brought into the midst of an argument. If you were to have read chapter 7 first this morning, you would see that the teachers of the law in Jesus are having a primary conflict about the law, back and forth and back and forth. And so they believe they're going to trap him now the next day. They gather again. This is in Jerusalem at the temple. So these are the, 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 the big, the, the big uh, the guys with lots of authority. And um, they bring to him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And they said, if you believe in the law and you're a law keeper, then this woman is to be stoned. Don't you agree, Jesus? Well, in the, the mystery of that time when he's writing in the sand, and of course people have pondered through the ages, well, what did he actually write in the sand? But it's really not central to this story. But it does give him time to think of a reply because he knows they're trying to trap him. And if he answers it one way or another way, um, it, it, will not, um, it won't go well for her or it won't go well for him. And so he says, well, anyone who has never sinned, let him cast the first stone. And uh, it gets them. And um, as we know, they, they drift away one by one. And it leaves this personal encounter with Jesus and the adulterous woman. And uh, he says, no one's condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus says, there's no condition here, see. He says, neither do I depart. From now on, sin no more. Now, the law would have gone like this. The law would have said, if you go and sin no more, then neither will I condemn you. But grace goes like this. Neither do I condemn you. Perfect love, one-way love, grace to a woman who deserves stoning, you might say. But Jesus says, instead, he decides to love her. That's grace. We don't know the rest of the story, but I expect that that woman, empowered by love, received from Jesus in grace, I suspect she straightened out her life. Not because she ought to or had to, 
but because she wanted to start over, perhaps even start over with her marriage and get the whole thing restored and rebuilt. So I know this is a long quotation, but Martin Luther is very heavy on law and grace in a good way in his writings. This is actually from a commentator about Martin Luther because Martin Luther was um, standing up against the law of the church of his day and uh, speaking of a different kind of discovery of grace and faith. And so he will say this, um, uh, this commentator will say about Martin Luther, freed from the burden and bondage of attempting to use the law to establish our righteousness before God, Christians are free to look to commandments not as conditions, but as descriptions and directions as they seek to serve their neighbor. In other words, once a person is liberated from the common sense delusion that acting righteously makes us righteous before God, and in faith believes the counterintuitive reality that being made righteous by God's forgiving and resurrecting word precedes and produces righteous action, then the justified person, the person made right with God by God's gift of making him right, to the cross of Jesus, is unlocked to love. So Martin Luther will say, a famous quotation, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. St. Augustine, remember a week ago, love God and do as you please. It's the most difficult concept to get a hold of. I think in all the Christian lexicons and dictionary, this idea of law and grace. And so we uh, have the danger of defaulting back into the law in our everyday lives all the time. But this is what Paul wants us to understand. He says it in Galatians 5, It is for freedom Christ has set us free, free from sin and free from the law. He says, live a life of love, of one-way love. Live a life of grace, in other words. He will say, the fruit of the Spirit, of those who are in love and under this love, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That fruit is not a work. It is a fruit. It is a byproduct of life in Christ. So Paul Zoll, perhaps hits a home run when he says, law kills love. It contaminates and taints all our relationships as we have laid the law on our wife, our husband, our children in oughts and shoulds and demands. But point number two, love births the law. As we love our children and love our spouses with a one-way love without the expectation return, there is a grace that is released in those relationships and law is upheld. So, as we move forward, seek grace. Seek grace. And as we move forward in the weeks ahead, let's look at this practically and experientially for each of our lives as we seek to live a life of grace. Amen. I am preaching at the next service as well and that's why I'm just bolting right down the center aisle